Merry Christmas and welcome to Said Contra, the podcast of the Soccer Doctrina Project. I'm joined today by a couple of Soccer Doctrina Project executives, as it were, and I'm the new guy in the room. Uh, my name is Urban Hannon. This is my first time on the Said Contra podcast, um, but for this Christmas episode, we decided we would do something a little bit lighter today. So to help me do this, I am joined today by Taylor Patrick O'Neill. Hello, happy to be here. And by Father Dylan Schrader. Glad to be with you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all. And today we're going to do what's called a movie draft. So the way this works, basically, you can think of it kind of like a fantasy sports draft. But we're going to go through a series of rounds, a series of categories. And each of us is going to choose... uh, six movies total so we'll have 18 movies on the board all together and this is two things this is both an excuse for us to make some recommendations talk about some of our favorite films um and sort of hear from each other about what we like what we don't like when it comes to cinema but all three of us i think are fairly competitive men uh this is also a chance for us to try to win Um, So we're going to end up with a draft of six films apiece that we'll then put to a Twitter poll or something like that by way of Soccer Doctrina's Twitter um, and also have this link from our website, which, as you know, is SoccerDoctrinaProject.org and give you a chance to decide which of the three of us, you know, has the superior taste. So... um, Before we get into the draft itself, let's talk through what our categories today are going to be. So for this draft, we thought it being the Christmas octave, we definitely need to pick a Christmas movie. So that's going to be our first category. Um, And we're gonna take a very broad sort of read of what a Christmas movie could be today. So the meme version of this, right, is is Die Hard a Christmas movie. Um, And the answer for the purposes of this podcast is emphatically yes. Um, more on Die Hard in just a minute. Uh, Our second category today is going to be a family drama. Our third category is going to be a psychological thriller. Our fourth category, not really a genre, but a catch-all just to get us outside of the Hollywood bubble a little bit. Our fourth category is a foreign language film, so any language other than English. Um, Fifth category is going to be a Catholic movie. And again, like the Christmas movie, we're going to take a pretty broad definition of this one. This does not need to be um, a saint movie or something like that, though it certainly could be. Um, But any movie that you can kind of make the case for why it's a Catholic movie uh, is fair game for this category. Something that resonates with themes that are important to our faith in some way. And finally, um, we thought in addition to Christmas, of course, Uh, At the end of this week, at the end of this Christmas octave, we will be celebrating the new year. And so as 2022 draws to a close, I assume a lot of our picks in these other categories are going to reach much farther back into the past, whether by a few years or by many decades. But we thought for this last category, we should have a 2022 movie. So some movie that was released in the past calendar year that maybe is still in theaters. Of course, if it's an awards contender of any kind, it probably has been in theaters for all 48 hours already. Um, Or if you're over here in Europe like me, it actually won't be out for a couple more months. Um, But anyway, something that is more recent that we can talk about from this year. So 
Um, in terms of the draft itself, the way this is going to work is I've put our names into a great website called random.org that has generated a draft order for us. So Taylor is going to be picking first today. Father is going to be picking second and I'll pick third and we'll draft in a snake fashion, which means that we'll go all the way through and then reverse the order on the way back. Um, so it'll be Taylor and then father and then me and then father and then Taylor and then Taylor again, so forth. Um, so the people at the end get two picks when it's their turn. So um, beyond that, whenever it's your turn, you can pick in any category you like. You don't have to go in order. You might want to be a little bit strategic if you think you've got a movie that someone else is possibly going to be going for too. And once something has been picked, it's off the board for everyone for every category. So we'll end up with 18 unique films. Um, and finally, just before we dive in, I thought we'd talk through a couple of these categories. Um, so like I say, Christmas is pretty self-explanatory. We'll be taking a Die Hard as a Christmas movie kind of approach to this. But in that spirit, I did want to share the best thing I saw on Twitter this week, I think, uh, at least outside of actual Christmas posts. Um, someone shared a list of names of Die Hard in different countries. So of course, in different languages, this movie gets released, all movies get released under different titles. And I thought this was fantastic. So on Christmas Eve, someone named Adam Sharp said, happy Die Hard Day. Here are some of the titles of Die Hard in other countries. So this is his top five for this. But in Norway, Die Hard was called Action Skyscraper. Fantastic. In Spain, this was The Glass Jungle. In Romania, I guess this is literal, difficult kill, die hard, difficult kill. All right. Uh, in Germany, <laughs> this is very German. It was die slowly. And in Greece, very hard to die. Um, all right. So Christmas movie can be whatever you like. Um, for family drama, Taylor, can you talk to us a little bit about this category, about this genre? What, uh, what's a family drama? What do you like about these? What sorts of things ought we to be thinking of or looking for when we're thinking through this category? Yeah. So I think a family drama is, um, any, uh, film where there's conflicts between family members, those who are related to each other, obviously pretty much every film is going to have conflicts between characters, but a family drama is going to explore, um, you know, either relatable or all the way to um, extremely egregious and grave um, defects of relationship between family members. Um, but something that's going to explore that human element of the difficulty of being in a family and <laughs> being associated with, you know, given to people that you don't choose, which is of course um, fraught with all kinds of uh, problems and complexities that all of us are familiar with. So I think a family drama is anything that explores that. Obviously it can be, um, you know, extremely, you know, so even something like domestic abuse or something like that, very serious, or even something that makes, you know, in a certain way is dramatic, but even um, has comedic relief or something that makes fun of the foibles of families. So, you know, running the gamut from really dysfunctional families, just sort of poking fun a little bit or exploring the regular dysfunction, you know, what's normal dysfunction and, and uh, grave dysfunction is um, up for some debate. So I think it's really just any film that explores those kind of topics. 
Fantastic. And Taylor, of course, being the one of the three of us that is a husband and father, I thought would be particularly well suited to talk about family dramas. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, right. Father being the one cleric among us, I thought you might be uniquely situated to talk about psychological thrillers. <laughs> so would you like to uh, open that genre up to us? What's a psychological thriller? Of course, yes. Well, it's kind of a broad category. There are a lot of films that could fall into the genre of psychological thriller. So just to break it down uh, by what it's called, it's it's a thriller. It deals with suspense, drama, intrigue, but uh, has strong psychological themes. So, for example, not uh, not just things that are done for shock value, but playing on themes of um, could be mental illness, could be perception versus reality, uh, could be uh, truth and falsity. Um, there, there are, think of, for example, think of uh, some of the works of Alfred Hitchcock, I would say, mm -hmm. fall strongly into this. So the difference between something like uh, Rear Window and Texas Chainsaw Massacre will kind of illustrate the difference between psychological thriller and other kinds of horror films or thrillers. So uh, strong psychological themes. Very good. All right. Uh, any other sort of final comments before we get to the game itself? Let's go for All it. Right. Yeah, let's do let's it. Let's do it. So Taylor, you're up first. All right. So <laughs> one of the things that happens when you do, uh, at least in my case, when you get married and then especially when you have kids is getting out and seeing movies or even just watching them at home gets more and more difficult. So I'm going to start by picking something from the 2022 category um, because I think I've only seen maybe, I'm sure I've seen more than two or three, but I could only remember two or three. So, which is kind of sad for me, my wife and I, when we first got married, I think the first year after we got married, before we had kids yet, we were able to see in the theater every movie that was nominated for the Oscars for best picture, which Sweet. was a cool experience. And then, uh, and then after that, we sort of slowly descended into seeing like two movies a year. Um, so I, yeah, I only saw a few movies in 2022 and I only liked maybe one or two of them. So my pick for 2022 movie is going to be the Batman, um, with Robert Pattinson. I, I like Batman movies. Um, I really liked the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Um, and I liked that they were, you know, sort of dark and a little bit more of an adult oriented version of Batman. Um, but I just I loved uh, in uh, this Robert Pattinson version of Batman, just the the sort of emo uh, version of Batman. Um, like the Christopher Nolan movies were kind of darker, but they were intense and gritty. And this was more. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. Emo Batman with Nirvana playing in the background. And uh, sure. I won't give away any spoilers, but at the end, it just it takes a little bit more of a kind of um, earnest uh, approach to Batman uh, as opposed to the Christopher Nolan movies. Um, I didn't think the the Catwoman character was very uh, fleshed out very well. I didn't like that. So it wasn't a perfect film by any means. Um, but of all the movies that I saw in 2022, that was my favorite one. So that's my pick, the Batman. Nice. Yeah, this is, to be honest, probably my biggest oversight of 2022. I missed this one and had meant to see it in theaters, but then was in a p position when it left theaters where I thought, 
is this one that is going to work on my laptop in the same way? Yeah. What do you think? Do you need a theater for for this? Uh, I I think I think maybe less than you needed uh, to see it in the theater for like the Christopher Nolan movies. I didn't see it in the theater, and I thought okay. it worked. I really enjoyed it. A lot of it, I think, is. I mean, obviously there's action and stuff like that, but I thought it was less hanging on the action and more hanging on the mood. You know, he, Robert Pattinson takes off the Batman mask and he's got the black, you know, eye makeup on. And it's more about the mood, I think. Like there's some scenes where they're just on his motorcycle and he's driving around through like an old cemetery. <laughs> so it's really about the mood. So yeah, I think you could see it without being in the theater. That's good because I didn't good. see it either. So I thought about it, but like uh, Taylor, I I was thinking 2022. What movies did I actually see that came out in 2022? Not many, not many. But yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah, I'll have to give that a watch then. Should we just maybe maybe the listeners know this, but we should probably say there are going to be spoilers for everything. Um. Yeah. At the very least. Uh, so. I mean, I think we can try to avoid like the big, big spoilers. Like if there's some kind of, you know, moment in a movie, like if someone chooses Fight Club for their psychological thriller, <laughs> we'll try to talk around the, the big reveal. Though at this point, if it's been 23 years or whatever since Fight Club came out, we can only do so I, Yeah, much I think there's you. a there's a statute but, of limitations on spoilers yeah, or something. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, I think we're yeah. okay. Okay. For the 2022 movies anyway, yeah, we'll yeah, try yeah. to be careful. All right. Yeah. All right, Father, you're up. Oh, boy. Okay, well, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with 2022. Like I said, uh, I was thinking through very hard. Did I watch any movies that came out in 2022? I have not yet seen the new Avatar movie. Uh, I do want to see it because I love science fiction. But uh, Father Stu, Father Stu came out in 2022. So a lot of cursing, but in the end, a I think pretty pretty powerful message about redemptive suffering and the value of embracing the will of God, abandonment to divine providence, a lot of themes like that. And I thought it was pretty good. So I think for my 2022 movie, I got to go with Father Stu. Cool. Would you recommend Father Stu for those listeners who do not necessarily habitually enjoy um, kind of Catholic movies or holy movies, priest movies? Is Father Stu something that you think would work for people that don't usually connect with that sort of thing? I think so. I think that may have been the purpose of making it, in fact, other other than the fact that uh, Mark Wahlberg, I guess, just really likes this story and wanted to tell the story of his priest. Uh, it's, it's th I think, by design, sort of like a normal movie, if that makes sense. Uh, it's not Catholic propaganda. It's the story of this guy's life. And, you know, at places, it might be a little heavy handed. Uh, it might be a little melodramatic here and there, uh, emphasizing, you know, how much of a tough guy he is and how big his conversion is. But uh, I, think, I think it holds up. So, yeah, I think cool. most people would enjoy it. I've heard that they're releasing a version or have released a version that cuts down on the cursing. So if people are concerned about that, about the bad language, that <laughs> that might be an option for them. Is it one of those movies? What did I hear that they had done this with Goodfellas or something where they actually filmed the entire movie twice with two different scripts <laughs> so Holy that cow. there would be a TV version of it? Because there's just no way with some movies, you know, to just bleep things out. It'd be every sentence but i wonder with others do if they did that very good 
All right. Um, well, I have two choices now. Um, and I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to go for my second one, but I'll start with Catholic. I'll start in the Catholic category because the, the group of people I just alluded to who do not always gravitate toward kind of explicitly Catholic movies definitely includes me. Um, but there was a priest actually in my old religious community who said that he had taken a private vow never to watch a Christian movie again. Um, <laughs> and that was his excuse whenever he was asked, you know, have you seen the new St. Luke? This or that, um, which yes, sympathy. Um, uh, so my yeah. Catholic movie is not, uh, in some ways not explicitly Catholic though the church features, um, in the plot in an important way, but I'm going to take, Martin McDonough's 2008 film in Bruges as my Catholic movie, which I saw for the first time this year, actually, I'd never seen before. I watched in anticipation of The Banshees of Inishirin, which is McDonough's new movie that puts uh, Colin Farrell and Brennan Gleeson back together, which is itself a very good and interesting movie. Um, but so I watched in Bruges in prep for that this year and just absolutely fell in love with it. I thought that in Bruges, was hilarious, like absolutely top marks as a comedy. I was laughing from the first scene to the last scene, but was also a fantastic drama. In the last scene, when I started laughing, I had already been crying. So it just brought those together in a very uh, sort of funny way. And also at some point is a great action movie. Um, so it's a movie about assassins, these three assassins, um, Colin Farrell, uh, Brennan Gleeson, and um, Ray Fiennes. And is basically a movie wrestling with questions of justice, of retribution, of pain for evil, um, and whether there's forgiveness or mercy available to you after you've committed evil. Um, so it's not a huge giveaway. It's in the trailer to say that the, the sort of backstory that kicks off the movie is um, Colin Farrell's character, who's the main character of the film, shooting a priest um, as an assassin had been paid to to take out this priest. Um, but then something goes wrong in that hit. And so the rest of the movie is really all three of those characters wrestling with what is justice, even this kind of, you know, perverse justice um, that is the justice of a band of thieves, as it were. Um, what's right for kind of setting things back in order after um, something that all of them agree is unjust has happened here. So have either of you seen in Bruges? I have not seen it. I've not seen it either, but I've been, it's been on my watch list for a long time and yeah, I've been meaning definitely. to see it. I've only ever heard good things about it. Um, and I was, I guess I wasn't aware of some of the more explicitly Catholic elements, which sounds interesting given, you know, the genre of the movie. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'll have to go out and watch it now. Yeah, check it out. It's definitely a good time. Um, okay, from there, I'm going to shift gears, I think. Yeah, why not? So I'm going to go up to Christmas, um, to the Christmas category here, and continue with my theme of um, picking something that is, uh, you know, um, pushing the boundaries of what this can mean. But uh, again, I'm not someone who necessarily loves kind of movies uh about santa and his elves and the reindeer and all this sort of thing um, or even some of the christmas classics are honestly not always among my favorites 
But there's one movie that I really, really love that Christmas, I think, plays an important role in and a very kind of melancholy role in. And that's Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. Um, so Steven Spielberg's 2002 movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, interesting. Um, as well as Tom Hanks, uh, Amy Adams, uh, Christopher Walken, uh, Martin Sheen, just phenomenal cast. But I have to say, I think this is probably my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. Um, it's definitely my favorite Leo performance. And I think it's fair to say that it's my favorite Christmas movie, or at least quote unquote Christmas movie. So if you haven't seen it in a while, Christmas basically functions in this movie as a sort of touchstone year by year, because this movie is spanning um, decades, I think, but at least years. Um, when this high school boy uh, faced with the trauma of his parents' divorce ends up becoming like history's greatest master of check fraud um, and becomes or pretends to become successfully impersonates a pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, um, and yeah, is on the run from this very kind of wet blanket Tom Hanks character, this very kind of against type Tom Hanks character who you're sort of rooting against the whole time, which is not a relationship that audiences were necessarily used to having with Tom Hanks back in the early 2000s. Um, but basically you check in several times at Christmas um, and they often connect with each other on Christmas day because as Hanks calls uh, DiCaprio's character out on, he has no one else to call. He has no one else to be in touch with on that day except the FBI agent who's trying to stop him um, because he's just a lonely kid on the run. So despite having kind of conned the US government and all these banks and everything, he's actually at the end of the day, just a lonely guy who's alone on Christmas and calls the only person he still knows who wants to hear from him. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, Christmas comes back in a pretty powerful way as well um, as he, well, not exactly reconnects with his family, but sees part of his family again for the first time in many years. So yeah, catch me if you can. My, uh, my kind of go-to at Christmas time. Yeah, that's, that's a good observation. You know, uh, yeah, he, he doesn't have an identity of his own by the end. You know, he's got nothing else. Uh, his whole life has been this, uh, this series of fantasies that he's created, but you're right. Yeah. Christmas does serve as a touchstone in that. So yeah, it's, it's a great movie too. There's also a good Broadway version of this, actually, that, fun fact, uh, Father John Tveit, who's a priest of the Archdiocese of New York, who's presented at the Sacra Doctrina Project conference before, um, Father John's older brother premiered the role of Leonardo DiCaprio's character in the Broadway version, Aaron Tveit. Um, so great uh, cast recording online. But, yeah, great film. All right, Father Dylan, back to you. Well, let's see which uh, which category do I want to go with here. Um, I'm going to go with family drama, but you know this is this is kind of a tough decision here. Um, there are some maybe obvious choices, like you know, The Godfather would be an obvious choice, uh, and I'm not saying I wouldn't vote for that, except for the fact that I'm sure. Well, I'm not sure, but I would assume perhaps one of you two would would vote for that. Um, if it can be considered a family drama, I want to say Babette's Feast. Yeah, I think it definitely can. You know, it it doesn't 
deal with uh, relate the, the tensions of relationships within like a dynasty or a, it, it's not bi- it's not on a big scale like that. It's not multi generational, but it does deal with the relationships of people in this small town and this uh, this woman Babette who is is taken in and who takes on the role of a servant or a cook for this these two sisters and uh you know the the whole time she she has this this great talent and she's not able to express it uh and it's it's her dealing with um you know the the change of life and and living this very humble this very humble life uh not until the end where she's able to actually give to these, these people that she's, that she lives with and to the, to these townsfolk, uh, the fruits of, of her skill. Let's say, you know, they don't realize the entire time that she, that she's this, this master chef and that she's finally able to prepare this lavish feast for them. You know, whereas in the beginning they're teaching her, so to speak, how to, how to make this, uh, this soup with, with like bread in it and stuff. This is very simple. And she goes through all that. She submits to all that, and uh, it's really interesting to see the relationships of the different characters and how they they interact with each other. So it takes place on such a small scale. It's just this tiny town. It's just a series of of people uh, uh, interacting with each other. But it's uh, such a beautiful movie. Um, you know, some really powerful, really powerful messages in there. Uh, about the the importance of love, the importance of service, the importance of humility, uh, the importance of uh, using one's gifts for others rather than to advance your career or, or make yourself look better or things like that. So, yeah, I want to say Babette's Feast. That's great. That would also uh, fit in a couple of our other categories here, yeah. of course, <laughs> with foreign language for starters, but also just Catholic, the uh, the Catholic versus Protestant. Dynamic, well, that's true. Catholic and that's, that's Puritan true. Yeah, dynamics. Of course, Babette is Catholic. Yeah. 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 And this, in this little, uh, little Protestant town. And so, yeah, the different, the different approaches uh, to worship or to the idea of what, what grace is or mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the lavish, the, the, the lavish Catholic approach <laughs> versus the stark, uh, you know, kind of meager, barely, barely sufficient uh, approach that surrounds it. It's yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Do you know who has said this is his favorite movie? Uh, I do not. Our Holy Father, Pope Francis. Wow. Pope Francis. Oh. Really? Indeed. Wow. Wow. Good choice. Good yeah, choice. I just find it, it funny that 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 movie does a good job of portraying how um well there's a certain irony to the fact that uh, especially a lot of um calvinist protestant theology really speaks about um the eucharist you know as the lord's supper and it's constantly speaking about the supper the feast of the lord etc and then they're the they're the the ones who in that movie are least able to actually enjoy a feast right it's the catholics who are most able to enjoy a real supper a real feast Absolutely. All right, Taylor. <clears throat> All right. Um, You've hmm. got two picks. Oh, that's right. Okay. Okay. I think I'm going to start with the Christmas category and I'm going to go super cliche and, and basic here uh, and pick Home Alone. Um, I, <laughs> I'm i not a huge... Um, I mean, I like a lot of the staple Christmas movies. Um but some of the things like uh, my wife 
every year is so um, dismayed, disheartened by the fact that I've still never seen It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> so I've lived 30 some <laughs> years of my life and I've never seen it. Um, so I don't know. I'm sure a lot of Home Alone for me is nostalgia. You know, it came out, I don't know, when I was pretty small, but then um, I grew up watching it every Christmas, probably multiple times. Um, so I'm sure nostalgia plays a big factor there, but I just think it's, it's a really, it is a great movie. It's a great Christmas movie. It's funny. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of drama, like my kids, you know, it's going to happen to him. And, you know, how can you not love these two, like cartoonish villains that come and they're destroyed by. <clears throat> Christmas ornaments and you know uh, whatever and there's it's a great soundtrack it's got a lot of like classic Christmas songs in it um, there's a lot of great like quotable one-liners in the movie um, so I don't know to me it, it doesn't feel like Christmas until I've watched Home Alone during the Christmas season and then it feels like it's really come so I'm going to um, stand by that as um, one of those cliche Christmas movies that is actually meriting the um all of the acclaim i think yeah i totally agree um i actually i was trying to pull up real quick but have failed to do it yet uh the list of nominees that year for best supporting actor because <laughs> if it were up to me joe pesci would absolutely <laughs> be in that category it's just absolutely fantastic yeah there's there's just there's so it's such a quotable movie i mean i think that's part of the reason why it's great to rewatch it because every scene there's two or three quotes in it that you you're waiting to hear of course you know what's wild joe pesci won that oscar that year for best supporting actor because it's the same year as goodfellas incredible okay. oh wow holy cow what a there flex you go. by joe pesci that's like, it's, yeah you're, you're, that you're must playing be one of the best yeah. one two punches of all time two sides of the spectrum there yeah unbelievable no, okay it's a so great, great movie so, so i guess i have the next pick then if we're snaking back so um hmm. let's see i think i'm gonna pick um for foreign language um so i'm a big ingmar bergman fan i've seen most of his movies maybe not absolutely all of them and i know that in many ways this is the one that's most popular i'm sure it's the most widely seen of, of his movies um but i think for good reason um i think uh what i understand of bergman's life he was i think he was the son of a lutheran pastor or something like that and you can see in his films that one of the great interests for him is question of faith uh, um in uh the context of, uh, you know, uh, contemporary challenges to faith, scientific challenges to faith, the kind of introspective psychological uh, challenges to faith. In many ways, um, Bergman would fit right in with our conference, SDP's conference theme for this upcoming mm -hmm. summer. Um, <clears throat> but you can see Bergman, I mean, unfortunately, his films get, I think, a little bit more and more depressing as the years go by, because some of his earlier films, you can see him struggling with faith. And then in the later stuff that goes into the 70s and even the 80s, he, you can clearly see that this is a guy that's lost his faith. And I think the seventh seal is in that early, earlier period where he's still questioning the faith. And um, I've never seen a movie, I think, that deals with 
the questions of faith and the questions of death as well as the seventh seal does. I mean, even just the premise, right? A guy who's returning from the crusades is playing chess with death. And he, there's, I think one of the greatest scenes I've ever seen in a film is where um, Antonius Block, the main uh, character, is um, confessing basically his doubt. And uh, this is er early on in the film and it's been out for, you know, whatever, 60 plus years. So um, uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but the person to whom he's confessing is actually the devil uh, or death, uh, rather, who is um, tricking him into thinking that he's a priest. But this confession that he makes about his lack of faith, but his desire to have faith is really moving. I think it's one of the more touching um, scenes I've ever seen. Um, yeah, I would, I used to show this to students when I would have a class where we would um, treat death and especially Christian approach to death. Um, so it's one of my favorite movies. Um, uh, yeah, beautiful film. The cinematography is wonderful as well. Uh, so yeah, there it is. I also had this shown to me in a class one time um, by another person who I'm pretty sure has presented at a Sacred Doctrina Project conference before. If not, he needs to. But Shane Owens taught me church history at the Dominican House of Studies back in the day. And he had us do a paper watching The Seventh Seal, which he loves as a film, um, but then comparing it to um, some writings by, I think, Augustine Thompson and Eamon Duffy and others looking at um, this kind of morbid late medieval um, obsession with death that becomes the later accusation of what this period was like and sort of evaluating the degree to which um, this compares favorably with the actual historical records we have of of this period and so forth. But uh, whether it does or doesn't, it is an absolutely marvelous film. Are you a chess player yourself, Taylor? You know, I do. I do play chess, but I'm really terrible about uh, at it. So I, I go on a fishing trip every year with some of my old friends from college. And when we're not fishing, you know, a lot of times we're playing chess and I lose all the time. So I uh, I don't know. I think I would have, you know, lost. Maybe don't play chess. Maybe at least. <laughs> yeah. Pick a different game. All right. Father Dylan, you are up. All right. Back to me. Um I think I'm going to do a psychological thriller. Um, again, this is one I had several contenders in my mind for this slot. And I thought about sal saying uh, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, there's also a movie called The Game, which I always enjoyed. Uh, however, um, I think I want to go with uh, Existence. So this is a this is a science fiction movie. David Cronenberg came out the same movie, the same year as the matrix, I believe, and deals with the theme of reality versus unreality. So it's about the, this uh, game designer who's working on this virtual reality game called existence. And at the same time, there's this anti gaming coalition, this, this, uh, this, kind of terrorist group that's looking to destroy the game industry because they think it's detrimental to humanity. And so they, the movie takes place both within and without both inside and outside of this virtual reality game. And there's a lot of really creepy and disturbing elements to the, to the movie. So uh, it's, 
I, I enjoy it for, for a lot of the, the science fiction aspects of it, but just as a movie, I think it's, uh, it's, it's got a lot of weird stuff in it. You know, it's that kind of body horror thing that David Cronenberg is known for. And some people don't like that. So if you don't like that, don't, don't watch it. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta go with existence. Cause I, I've, I, I just feel like um, it's a movie I really enjoy. Could go back to it again and again. Um, seen it several times and have kind of thought through different theories about well, what's the real story? What's re- what's the real uh, timeline for what's going on? And it's one of those things. There there may not be an answer to that. Um, I don't know. So that's my choice. This is a movie I remember. Um, some of my uh like friends older brothers liking when it came out you know um is is it i'm curious i've never seen it does it have a does it lean towards favoring or um disfavoring this group that is trying to end the game it's not clear it's not clear so it's uh what was I going to say? So the, the, again, I think it came out the same year as the Matrix. Uh, whereas the Matrix is, you know, I would say it was certainly a, certainly a larger budget there, and you know, straightforward science fiction movie uh, had the theme of virtual reality, but really wasn't playing with the idea of what is real versus unreal in the same way. That is, in the in the Matrix, it's pretty clear when you're in the Matrix and when you're not. Uh, at least maybe till the end of the movie or until some of the sequels, it gets a little bit fuzzier, but uh, existence is all about, you know, what is real. And for that matter is re is reality better than unreality. Right. Um, it had a, let's see, it had, it had a Jude law in it, it had a Willem Dafoe. So there were some, you know, actual, actual legitimate actors in it. But, uh, you know, David Cronenberg made an earlier movie uh, called Videodrome, which is very disturbing, which I would not really recommend to people in the same way. It's uh, it's it's got it's got some unsettling elements in it. But uh, Existence, I think, is the better the better version of that story that he's trying to tell. Yeah, it's just so interesting that around that time that people had just started getting comfortable with the Internet and had really become a part of your everyday life for most people that um yeah that there's multiple movies coming out within that same year sort of grappling with this question of you know like yeah what happens if your life becomes consumed by technology like what is the yeah what's the breaking point between the the world of reality and the world of you know digital or online whatever exactly and i i think what existence does more than the matrix is pushes it to the question of is truth better than the lie and will people, will humanity be willing to reject the technology that we have if it leads us deeper into, into fantasy and alienates us from reality? You know, is that a choice that we're willing to make? Uh, so it's kind of the red pill, blue pill thing, but it's on a grander scale. Yeah, so that, that year with The Matrix and with Existence uh, is 1999, which I think is probably the best or at least most important um, kind of movie year of our lifetimes. Uh, That's also, I mean, to name just a few, it's 
Fight Club, that's Magnolia, that's the talented Mr. Ripley, that's the Sixth Sense, that's Eyes Wide Shut, um, that's just a huge, huge movie year. But I think for, oh, it's also Runaway Bride, apparently. But I think for my next pick, I'm going to go to what I think is the best movie year of this millennium, of this century, you know, which is 2007. Yeah. So from my point of view, there's kind of four movies that... Um, duked it out uh to win the year in 2007 one of those is a movie that uh taylor has actually talked about on another podcast before which is there will be blood um but the others in this category would be um the george clooney um picture michael clayton uh which is a really interesting film there and then of course the oscar winner the cohen brothers um no country for old men but I'm going to take the fourth movie and I'm going to take this in psychological thriller. And this is Zodiac. So yeah. this is um, a really yeah, interesting film that is a little bit difficult to categorize, but I think psychological thriller actually does pretty well for us. It was presented at the time as kind of a this movie and deliberately so is that you actually don't um, solve the mystery um, there's maybe a kind of probable opinion by the end of the movie as to what's going on but part of the point of this movie is we still don't know so this is based on a true story about the zodiac killer um, and this is a kind of san francisco based movie um, a northern california based serial killer um, and so this is a David Fincher movie. This is the same director who did The Game, which Father mentioned a minute ago. Um, also did Fight Club and Gone Girl and Seven and Panic Room and all sorts of movies. The King psychological thrillers. Uh, also The Social Network, which maybe not a psychological thriller, but the case could be made. Um, but no, Zodiac, I think it's so interesting because you've got all of the sort of trappings of what could be a crime movie, a sort of whodunit movie, but instead it ends up being more of a character study in the people who become obsessed with this. So Jake Gyllenhaal plays a reporter. Actually, he's not even a reporter. He's uh, a cartoonist for a newspaper who uh, through his work at the paper, drawing cartoons for different stories just ends up becoming super involved in this. Um, and then Robert Downey Jr. who plays an actual reporter at the paper and kind of a big deal reporter um and then mark ruffalo is the kind of head cop inspector on this case um and all three of them and other characters too you get to see how this kind of plays out in their psyches but for Hall and rdj and ruffalo um watching the different ways that obsession kind of unmakes these men over the course of a movie um, so in Joan Hall's case, he's got a wife, Chloe Savinia, and a young son. So seeing what this does to his marriage, RDJ is at the top of his game, like really, really important um, kind of celebrity writer um, and ends up being similarly kind of ruined at the end of all this. And then Ruffalo um, kind of against his partner and superior and all these people in the, the bureau by the end um, just won't let go of this case either in a certain way and seeing um, really, really incredible storytelling and cinematography and sort of editing and the way it's cut and all of this. Um, but seeing what obsession 
does to someone, even when it's a good obsession, you're trying to solve this important case to prevent future murders and so forth. Um, there's a lot of this movie where you're not totally sure what's real or at least what's associated with the person you're actually looking for. When is this copycat killers? When are you putting yourself in harm's way unnecessarily? When are you sort of imagining things or exaggerating the importance of things, et cetera. So I think of all of Fincher's movies, this might be the cleanest um, in terms of exploring some of these themes with something like Fight Club or The Game. I think the setups in both are kind of interesting. And to me, both have some pretty bad third act problems. Um, and it's kind of difficult to land the plane. But this one, I think, the fact that the plane isn't going to land ends up being sort of the point in a way that works really nicely. So yeah, Zodiac 2007 is my psychological thriller. Oh, and I go again, don't I? Okay, yes. I'll be quicker on this one. Um, yeah, I'll pick a movie that I think there's a good chance uh, a lot of our, our listeners have seen. Um, in foreign language, I'm gonna take Parasite which is my favorite recent foreign language movie. So this, of course, won Best Picture in 2019. What well, came out in 2019 won Best Picture in 2020. Um, and this is Bong Joon-ho's sort of family drama, um, but exploring class um, and sort of the way that these two families and really by the end of the movie, these three families interact in a world that has stacked the deck in very specific ways, but sort of invisible ways to those who are um, economically advantaged in the society and seeing how these worlds colliding in this very underclass family coming into the employment and association of this very wealthy family, how that affects both families. Um, and what I love about this movie is it's not really a film about good guys and bad guys. Like the people who have money in this movie are not evil. Um, they're not, you know, deliberately destroying this other family, but it's very much a study in the sort of extremes of the capitalist system. Um, and I think does a really nice job of portraying what happens when we lose any kind of civic friendship or um, kind of association together toward a common good and instead end up in a very um, sort of zero sum game that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, but it's not just a meta commentary either. It's a very specific story about very specific individuals. And I think is just beautifully shot and works really well. Uh, it's one of those movies where the first half and the second half uh, you didn't know what movie you were watching until suddenly it turns and you get to see very quickly just how destructive all of this is. I think it's phenomenally done. Yeah, that's a great pick. I, I thought that was a really um, well done movie. And I thought, yeah, it, like you said, it dealt with um, issues of class, but in a really, um, yeah, not in an overly um, sort of, beating you over the head like a lot of um hollywood films do it was mm -hmm. i mean it was it was obvious that it was about class but it was um yeah portrayed in a little bit with a little bit more subtlety um and a little bit more nuance and thoughtfulness than a lot of hollywood films would probably deal with it subtlety and nuance are, are nice in film and i yeah in the last decades my goodness 
it's we've lost it. <laughs> Everything has got to be so, so uh, upfront and so direct. And there's no, and there's, I, it's one of the things that drives me crazy about a lot of uh, co- contemporary movies. There's no understatement. You know, sometimes understatement is very powerful, but everything has got to be just spelled out for you. And you know. sort of like Hollywood has gone the the way of the Christian films that Urban was talking about earlier. It's just sort of yeah, one right. note being played loudly over and over again. Yeah. I think it's helpful too that Bong Joon Ho is South Korean. So all of this is happening in a culture that is not our culture but that becomes an interesting lens through which to view our culture. I think this would work less well if it were set in, um, you know, Portland or Mm -hmm. uh, LA or something like this. And you're looking at class struggles there, not because they aren't real, but because you get a kind of pure type that um, is foreign enough that you get to not suspend disbelief, but sort of come to it fresh and without your own kind of political, um, presuppositions about the whole thing so yeah i think it works really really nicely all right uh back to me back to you okay uh i'll stay with foreign language and i'm gonna go with palm poco this is a japanese anime film came out in the mid 90s and it's one of my favorite movies it is uh it is so good if you don't like anime you may not like it it's about a family an extended family of tanuki so raccoon dogs and the way they deal with their changing environment. So there's increased industrialization and the the place where they live is being developed into subdivisions and things like that. And they have to cope with that. One of the things I love about this movie is that the animation style switches fluidly back and forth between very realistic and very cartoonish. And that illustrates kind of the personality of the uh, of the characters because they they're these silly kind of ridiculous um animals trying to deal with a very serious situation but they almost can't take it seriously for for very long so it's life and death but they their they their attention quickly shifts away from that to lots of other silly things and they have to come back to it and the whole time the animation is kind of following that same pattern but then by the end of it, they're being true to themselves because they're they're accepting death and loss and real tragedy, which has this emotional impact, but they're accepting it in this whimsical way because that's who they are. And throughout, it's peppered with lots of references to uh, Japanese folklore and mythology. And there's lots of these there's lots of fantastical scenes because uh, one of the things they can do is they can create illusions. So in one of their in their attempts to deal with the encroachment of humanity upon this forest where they live, uh, they they create these these powerful illusions to try to scare people away and things like that. And so you get all these um, these creatures and things from Japanese myth. And it's just a it's a really fun movie. But what I like about it is the juxtaposition of the serious and the absurd it's it's these ridiculous creatures trying to deal with life and death issues but they they can't even take it seriously because they're not serious i'm glad we got an a- animated movie board this is uh you know a huge percentage of the output of the movie business these days especially uh so glad we get some representation there we don't have an animated or a children's kind of category 
Um, are you an anime fan in general, Father? It depends. No, it depends on what it is. It depends on what it is. You know, it, I mean, anime is just Japanese animation. So it's it's like it could be anything. I I like science fiction and fantasy a lot. So there are with so there are anime movies that fall into those categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is one that I like because it has the uh, the folklore, the mythology and some of that some of that stuff in it. But also because the animation style is so good. So I, I do I like good animation. You know, I, I really like if it's done well, some I mean, there's a lot of bad animation out there, you know, but uh, if you think back, for example, uh, Don Bluth, you think of some of Don Bluth's movies, uh, The Secret of Nim, um, All Dogs Go to Heaven. You know, there's some there's some really good just animation in those. Anyway, this is a movie. This is a movie that I like for that for that reason as well, in that it's sh- the style shifts back and forth from cartoonish to realistic. There are things you can do with animation you can't do with live action. Yeah, for sure. Is this one you'd say has a relatively low barrier for entry for people who don't necessarily have much experience with Japanese animation or with um, this sort of story in general? Is it one you'd recommend to general audiences? Oh yeah, I would, I would. there will be a lot of references to things, things in folklore or things like that. You don't really need to understand. You don't really need to get it. You know, you yeah. don't really didn't, you don't really need to know uh, it's this fairy tale or it's that particular story because you can just focus on the characters and on what's what's happening in front of you. So I think it's it's intelligible to most people. Cool. All right, Taylor, you've got two picks. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I think I'll start with the family drama. Um, yeah, I I spent a while thinking about what I wanted to pick here. One of my uh, the, one of the directors that I really like um, in general, um, but particularly in this genre, is Wes Anderson. Um, I mean, the Royal Tenenbaums is, I think. Um, one of the better family dramas that's come out probably in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and then I thought about picking another movie from 2007, um, uh, the Darjeeling limited, another Wes Anderson film, which is really good. I mean, it's about three brothers and the relationship that they have with their mother. But, um, I think I'm going to go with, um, again, 2007, there will be blood. Um, I've talked about it on another podcast, but it's just, it's such a fantastic uh, film. It's probably number one or number two for me. Um, the reason why I list under family drama is that in a lot of ways, the movie, I mean, ostensibly it's about um, capitalism and religion. It's about oil empires, but really the theme, the main thread that flows throughout the movie is the relationship between um, Daniel Plainview and his son. And, um, this is the thing that, yeah, his son, exactly. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, this is a theme that flows through a lot of his movies. He oftentimes deals with um, relationships, especially father-son relationships. Um, and I, I think those are, there's a particular complexity and difficulty between father and son relationships. Obviously, you know, mother-daughter, father-mother, those all have their own complexities. But I think this deals with those complexities really well. Um it's it's been out for a while. I won't spoil the ending, but um, it's it, it's a film where when you watch it and you think about the relationship that Daniel Plainview um, 
has with his son, uh, it's difficult to parse out. There are some extremely moving and sweet moments in that film. There's a film where, or a scene where he's sitting on the train with his son, um, HW and HW is just a baby and, um, nothing happens in the scene. Just they're sitting on a train car and this baby reaches over and starts playing, um, with Daniel Plainview's mustache. And it's just, um, and then you're thinking about that scene when things unfold later. And, uh, it's really, it's a heartbreaking movie. Um, precisely because it's dealing with this this really tense difficult relationship um so yeah maybe not immediately thought of as a family drama but um i think that's really what the, what the movie is about there's some interesting family stuff on the other side too with paul dano um and mm-hmm. thinking through how that family dynamic kind of works with the twins yeah and it, again there it's father and son Right. So Paul Dano's character, the especially the one that ends up becoming the pastor, um, yeah, completely runs roughshod over his father and starts to control the family. Um, and then, I mean, there's even more themes of family. There's um, Daniel Plainview's um, brother who, uh, well, I'll just put a spoiler alert here. We find out is not actually his brother, um, but he shows up. And Daniel Plainview is someone who throughout the film only shows any sympathy empathy human love for people that he thinks he's related to by blood Mm -hmm. so hw is obviously not his biological son but uh he basically takes him on as his adopted son and then his brother while he thinks he's his brother is the only person that he confides in um and then things go south when he finds out that you know the brother's been lying to him about being his brother um but yeah uh great film um it's difficult to watch so if you are um if you get upset by uh, violence or gore um you probably don't want to watch it but if not i mean if you haven't seen it you've got to see it i thought you were going to yeah. say you liked it because of the sermon where he calls universalism a false doctrine <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's just the cherry on top yeah Taylor, what was the name of the podcast you did on it? I've forgotten the name. of. Oh, it was um, Watch and Wonder with Josh. Watch and Wonder. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great, great. Yeah. The father-son stuff seems like maybe for our generation, especially kind of the quickest way to to get at a guy's heartstrings when watching a movie, even for those of us who are blessed to have, you know, good fathers and good relationships with our fathers. There's something about that dynamic that I don't cry all that often in movies, but it's a good chance that if I do, it's because of some kind of father-son thing going on on yeah, screen. Exactly. Yeah. All right. You've got one more pick. Okay. I've got one more pick. Like I, I'll, I'll be shorter on the next one. Uh, I think I'm going to pick for Catholic movie. And this really would have, I think this could have fallen under Christmas movie, but I had to get home alone in there is um, children of men, children of men, children uh, of men. Yeah. Came out in 2006. So right around the same time period. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very well done film. I mean, it's a very good movie. It was kind of a big budget Hollywood movie, but um, it's got Michael Caine. It's got Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, um, but a very well done film. Obviously, um, if you haven't seen it, the premise of the film is that um, people are essentially all of humanity is no longer able to procreate. Um, And so there are no children. Uh, the youngest people I think in the movie are maybe what in their preteen years or something. And there's been no, no one knows exactly why, but the humanity's not able to reproduce. 
Um, and Clive Owen basically um, becomes the um, caretaker of uh, a woman who is pregnant. I mean, no one knows how or why, but there are um, it, it, not sort of beat you over the head, uh, but clear Christological allusions throughout the film, Marian allusions to this woman. So she is pregnant with the child that is um, the child who changes everything, right? And um, there's a, a scene in this movie. One of the things that Children of Men was known for um, was its cinematography. So it has these very long, unedited shots without any cuts. And um, there's a scene in this movie, it's worth watching the movie just for this scene, where uh, Clive Owen is basically trying to get this mother to um, safety, and there's a, a major sort of fight going on between rebels and uh, government military um, troops. And this baby comes out, Clive Owen and the, the mother come out in the middle of this fight, and everyone stops fighting. The rebels stop fighting, the, the troops stop fighting, and everyone just is staring in amazement as this child as it walks between everyone. And once the child is out of sight, people go back to fighting. Um, and it's such a beautiful, um, Christologically pregnant scene, um, where here is this child that brings peace to everyone who is within view of the child. And there's a few moments where the mother, uh, before she gives birth to the child is standing there clearly, um, with Marian imagery, the song I think is, um, some Christmas song or something that's playing in the background. Um, so very well done, you know, sort of action-packed movie, but um, yeah, uh, a, a really spiritually, as I said, pregnant, which is no pun intended, but um, <laughs> a very um, almost a kind of thinly veiled in the in the best sense, um, um, pro uh, pro creative, pro Christian uh, movie. I don't think I've one seen that one since it came out. I remember enjoying it. Uh, I think I saw it in the theater. I remember really, really enjoying it. it. There's a at one at one point. I think this is the movie that has a um, a cover of the song "Ruby Tuesday," which I like better than the uh, better than the original. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. There's a movie that's been on my watch list for forever that the same director Quaron did for Netflix actually, and was an Oscar contender maybe three or four years ago now called Roma set down in Mexico, but I still have not gotten to watch it. I've heard it's really beautiful. Very good. All right. Father Dylan. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm going to do Christmas movie and I'm going to say Ben Hur. Oops. Sorry. I, oh, at least we, for me, you cut out there for just we a, cut second, out for a second. I'm going to say Ben Hur. All right. And out of the three that have been nominated so far, I will I will uh, emphasize this one contains a depiction of actual Christmas. So the actual nativity. I assume you mean the uh, you mean the 2016 version of this movie with Morgan Freeman, of course. <laughs> I I don't think I saw that one. I don't think I saw that one. Was it was it good, though? Uh, you you are a lucky, lucky man. No, it was absolutely. 
<laughs> uh, no, I'm, refer- I'm referring to the the one the one that I know with uh, Charlton Heston, which is like four hours long or whatever. Yeah, if it doesn't have an intermission in the middle of it, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested. <laughs> no, I. So, I of course we're taking Christmas movie in a in a broad sense, but again, I will emphasize this has the actual nativity in it, right? So, it's got that going for it. But what I think is really interesting, I mean, it, it's just a great movie, right? It's 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 classic. It's a classic movie, classic lines referenced by many other movies and pop culture since then. Uh, but it's really interesting to see the 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 fall and the rise of this guy, Judah Ben-Hur, uh, the theme of faith, redemption, and the way that his life intersects with the life of Christ. Uh, I would say the juxtaposition or the contrast between worldly power and the need for redemption. Uh, almost, almost uh, in a way, in a way, kind of similar to Les Miserables. Um, you know, it's so he rises through the ranks. He, he he goes through all these hardships, and you know, he has within his grasp uh, the, the sort of like the, the you know power, control, and the ability to control his own destiny. But he has this need for redemption, and that's that's the one thing that it's the, the one thing humanity can't do for itself. And the one thing that we need, the problem at the root of all human tragedies, you know, no matter what else happens to us, the deepest problem we have is sin, our alienation from God and the need to be redeemed and forgiven. And we can't do that. God has to do that for us. And it's through the encounter with Christ that uh, that comes about. And this movie has the advantage of being a movie that features both the Christmas element and the passion and resurrection in the same movie. So you don't often get that, you know, it's hard to span that amount of time. Uh, And I think this movie does it really well. So it's just, it's just such a classic. I wasn't even aware that there was a 2016 version. (laughs) I think I remember that coming out. I never, I never saw it though. (laughs) I may have been, uh, invited slash required to see it uh under religious obedience with a whole group and yeah it was it was not a happy experience though admittedly it was a happier experience than the time we were similarly forced to go see the shack uh about which we do not need oh to speak more on oh my goodness <laughs> i never saw or read that but i remember it was quite popular for a few years for for some reason well, it's uh, I think it was one. Yeah, it's one of those books. If you go if you go to a if you can find a Barnes and Noble that is still standing somewhere and you go to the uh, Christian section, I think you find it there. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Um, OK, I'm going to pick my family drama, I think. Well, I've got my last two choices here, actually, my last two draft options here. But I'll start with my family drama. So everything I've picked so far has been from the 21st century. I'm going to dip back into the 20th century now and take Robert Redford's 1980s, sorry, 1980 film, Ordinary People. Um, So this is a movie that I saw for the first time just this year. It was recommended to me by a good friend. And it's rare for me that I see a movie and am affected by it kind of so deeply that when I'm then discussing it with people afterward and quotes from it are read. I start weeping just hearing these quotes again and remembering these things. But this is 
maybe the most dysfunctional family I've ever seen put on screen, but it's such an internal kind of dysfunction. It's not um, anything in terms of physical abuse. It's not drug problems. It's not adultery. It's nothing like that. It's just a family that has endured a very great trauma before the film begins, the loss, the death of a member of the family. Um, but then this mother and father and son trying to figure out how to love each other and communicate with each other. Um, and it's an interesting movie in terms of basically the, the kind of villain character. And there is a pretty clear villain character in the family is not the father. And you'd sort of expect it to be in this kind of film, but it's the mother. And the mother is played by Mary Tyler Moore. So coming in 1980, right off the Mary Tyler Moore show, this is maybe the most famous example of someone playing against type in cinema history. But she's playing this woman who is basically just incapable of loving her son. Um, and you have a certain amount of, if not pity for her, at least understanding of what's going on there psychologically because of the loss of her other son and so forth. But yeah, it's just a movie about a son who's hurting terribly and a mother who kind of can't relate to him or even get close to him because of the trauma she's undergone and a father who's simultaneously kind of trying to hold it all together while also denying that anything's really wrong or that his wife is this severely broken. Um, Another thing that's really interesting about this is for 2022, this would not be very groundbreaking or interesting, but for 1980, it features a whole subplot. Well, not even subplot. It features a whole plot about um, therapy and, you know, kind of talk psychology um, of someone being on the couch of a psychiatrist, psychologist's office, a counselor's office, and trying to process this. So it's the son and the family um, who's played by... Uh, the psychiatrist is played by Judd Hirsch. Um, and when I saw this, I thought everything that I thought was so kind of original and interesting about Goodwill Hunting and the Robin Williams character and that is actually, I mean, I love Goodwill Hunting, no, uh, no knock against that movie, but actually the whole therapy aspect of it was done more than a decade earlier and in some ways done much better. Um, it's kind of easy to not goodwill hunting for this now um, of the, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And just kind of how easy and too quick the kind of breakthrough moments in that movie happens. But in this movie in ordinary people, it's much more prolonged. It's much messier. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a really, really difficult, beautiful tale about trying to find healing and also kind of coming to honesty about what people are and are not capable of in terms of um, the sort of emotional comfort and even access that they can give to the rest of their family. So great film. Have either of you seen this one? I don't think so. You know, uh, it sounds kind of familiar. I don't think I've seen it though, but I... I may have put it on a list at some point. 
Yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, it famously is kind of hated by people who are big Oscars followers because it's the movie that beat Raging Bull for Best Picture, which people consider one of the biggest outrages in Hollywood history. But I have to say, I actually finally saw Raging Bull for the first time, like within the past two weeks. There's a theater in Rome where I live that does a bunch of classic American cinema stuff and picks one director at a time. So they've been doing a Scorsese thing for a little while here, and I'd never seen Raging Bull, so I went and checked it out. And I have to say, I mean, you know, it's quote-unquote Scorsese's masterpiece. It's not in my top five favorite Scorsese movies, even with um, De Niro and Pesci. Um, but I'm definitely in ordinary people's corner for that Oscar win. I think it's a much more interesting, much more powerful movie. So, recommend it. Nice. All right, I've got my last pick, um, and it's one that I could talk about for a really long so I'll not say much about it because I think it's actually a movie that rewards knowing very little about it before you see it. But this is my 2022 pick and it is the movie Tar, which is T A with uh, an acute accent R. Um, and this is the movie that I hope is going to win Kate Blanchett, another Oscar um, well-deserved, but it's a movie about a character named Lydia Tar who has sort of been um, propelled to or worked her way to or, um, yeah, exercised uh, a certain amount of self-creation to get herself to this very prestigious post within the world of classical music. So she's a conductor who's at the head of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, and it's a story that reads kind of like a biopic of a real person and actually there's a number of people who saw this movie and even wrote reviews of it thinking that Lydia Tarr was a real historical character um, but in fact this is the creation of Todd Field of the director um, purely fictional but as you'll see if you see this film it has a lot to say or to at least ask about things that are very real um, and that confront us today in terms of power and perhaps the abuse of power and the questions of our kind of um, self-creation, self-projection, um, the story we tell to the world or fashion for ourselves about who we are um, and how this relates to our own self-understanding. Um, yeah, it's a movie I've seen three times now. I had most recently last night, actually, I'm visiting a priest right now for Christmas and he, he wanted to sit to we watched it last night and it's the kind that you should see with people and see early enough in the day that you have several hours afterward to talk about the film with them um, because there's a lot going on there, both in terms of making sure you caught everything and kind of followed the story. Um, it's a different experience to watch it the second time through, but also in terms of just wrestling with the questions that it's trying to ask. So without saying too much about the actual plot, I would definitely recommend Tar um to yeah anyone that is interested in that kind of question or who's just interested in a really definitely gives in this film to tour de force i've been hearing a lot about that that movie i haven't seen it yet but um i've seen a few clips from it i don't know on youtube or something like that um yeah it, it, one of the clips i saw was interesting the the tar the 
professor, she's must be a scene where she's like calling out a student or something on being woke or something like that. Um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. It made me want to see it just to see how that fit in with the, the rest of the, the context of the movie. Yeah. So that scene has become, I think the scene of the year. Um, it's my favorite one -er of all time. So my favorite uh, one take, uh, just straight camera shot all the way through a scene. So the camera movement in that scene is incredible. And the fact that I think it's about 10 minutes long, the fact that they were able to do that in a single cut uh, is just unreal. But yeah, it's a very interesting scene. She's guest teaching a course at Juilliard within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Um, and in a way, everything in the rest of the movie is contained in that scene in microcosm. But that scene is very multifaceted. There's a lot going on there in terms of what she's saying, but also um, the way she um So yeah, it's an incredible scene. It's fun for those who, you know, agree with her character uh, in terms of the kind of absurdity of the woke agenda, but it's not that straightforward either. There's also yeah, yeah. a lot going on in terms of um, not just her winning a certain argument, but really the question of, is she, she actually in an argument? Is anyone fighting back against her? Or is she just kind of steamrolling this kid for the sake of performance and um, self, yeah, I keep saying self-creation, but become kind of the, the word of this movie. So anyway, Tar, Father Dylan, your last pick. All right, last pick is Catholic movie. Goodness, a lot of possible choices here. Um, I think at one time I would have said Keys of the Kingdom, which actually has Gregory Peck in it, believe it or not. But out of uh, devotion to my confirmation saint, I got to go with uh, the one about St. Joseph of Cupertino, the reluctant saint. So great movie. Uh, like all saint movies, uh, takes a few liberties with his life on the basis of the biographies that we have. So there's there's some details that are not 100% correct, but it's just a, it's a good performance, uh, deals with the themes of, of, I mean, of his life, of uh, humility and of trust in God, being misunderstood, being rejected. And um, yeah, just a great movie. So that's my confirmation name, Joseph Cupertino. So got to go with it. Very good. Yeah, it's one I haven't seen, but it's on my watch list. I've, I've heard good things. Actually, just this past week, a friend watched it and recommended it. Yeah, it, 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 I think it, I think it does hold up. It's one, and this was a real theme in his life too, was the struggle with academics, um, with formal study, the study of theology. He famously, uh, struggled in his studies and was ordained through a series of kind of providential events. Right. Uh, and I think what it highlights for me, both in his real life, but also the movie brings this out is, the difference or the the difference between knowing God personally and just knowing things about God. Yeah, because he he you know he can't he can't deal with all the canon law and the philosophy and the theology and stuff, but he actually has he's actually able to answer these deep theological questions. Uh the movie doesn't quite get some of that stuff right. There's a scene where he's talking about the Trinity, and that's a little cringy if you're a theologian, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, he has this deep personal knowledge of God and, and that's the most important thing. That's what, that, that's what comes across. 
to me. Yeah, so I just looked right. it up. Um, I didn't. I've never seen it, but given the, it seems like, um, it seems like a lot of these films that were made about the saints before a certain time avoid. I mean, there's maybe a little bit of kitschiness here or there, but a lot of them avoid the sort of one note heavy handedness that we've mentioned already a few times in Christian film or saint films. That um, yeah, they, they they not yeah, they just seem to be. Um, thing instead of just being a kind of vehicle for giving you this one particular message yeah the song of bernadette is definitely that way mm. um passion of joan of arc is an incredible example of that just even i mean people who are absolute atheists look at that movie and i think it's still in the sight and sound top 100 that just came out i think uh yeah. passion of joan of arc still ranks quite high in that so yeah. just oh sure yeah like we used to a man for all seasons Beckett, you know, some, some movies that are just good movies. Yeah, I guess the most recent example, um, but it's sort of the exception that proves the rule in terms of Saint movies uh, in recent years, recent decades even, is um, A Hidden Life by Terrence oh, Malick yeah, a couple years yeah. ago. Yeah, fantastic yeah. movie. Even people who, you know, are not Catholic in any way acknowledge that that's kind of Malick's comeback, that this movie is just incredible. And you can appreciate it as a secular person in terms of the kind of Nazi resistance and all of this as well, which is great. But after a kind of weird run of movies, I think between Tree of Life and A Hidden Life, everyone sort of said, this is incredible and Malick is back. Um, so maybe we will uh, be pleasantly surprised by his Life of Christ movie that's coming out in a few years, or maybe we will uh cower in cringing fear but we'll see yeah. yeah it's 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 interesting that i looking at our list here i don't think that any malik made it onto the list um but i mean i thought a, a bit about a few of malik's movies um tree of life um but also I, I saw tree of life in the theater with my wife and i think it was just us and one other old couple and i think they had thought oh this is a brad pitt movie about a family so they came and uh, about the, the 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 wife kept making comments throughout the movie, and then once it got about halfway through that creation scene in Tree of Life, she said, "Oh my goodness, this is enough!" And they got up. <laughs> it was just my <laughs> wife and I in the theater. So, um, yeah, I almost picked to the Wonder too for Catholic film. I think that's a really underrated Malick movie. Um, okay, anyways, psychological. I can't thriller. deal with the Ben Affleck of it all, to be honest. But otherwise, yeah. yeah. Yeah, ben, I get it, but the I think the reason why it works is that Ben Affleck really doesn't have to act very much, right? It just it's a Malick yeah, movie. around him. That's true. He's yeah. sufficiently insulated from the rest of the film. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, most of the movie is just showing um, Ben Affleck like looking out at a field from behind. He doesn't mm -hmm. he doesn't have to do any acting, so it works. Dancing through the mud at Saint Michel. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, talk about though. That's a. I mean. That should be the theology of the body movie par excellence. That's what that movie. Is. Um, anyways, uh, all, all right, right. So You're last the last one, pick like, of the game. Yeah, I'm gonna go with um, a movie I think is underrated. Um, came out in 1974. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, The Conversation with Gene Hackman. Um, I don't know why this movie doesn't get um, isn't talked about more. Um, 
I don't know whether it got nominated for Best Picture or not, but uh, I know a lot of people think that, you know, it might be Francis Ford Coppola's best, which is obviously saying a lot. Um, it's it's on the surface, um, I guess you'd call it like a spy thriller. Um, but I think um, the movie deals with a lot more than that. Um, I mean, it's probably one of the best spy thrillers ever made, um, but really it's a, it's a movie about uh, surveillance, um, technology, um, guilt. Uh, Gene Hackman actually plays his uh, character as a practicing Catholic in the in the movie, but uh, that doesn't end up playing a huge, huge part in the movie, at least not in a kind of explicit way. Um, uh, also, a young Harrison Ford uh, in this movie. Um, it's it's a movie about. Um, yeah, about surveillance technology, not in a kind of um, preachy, but, uh, you know, this is right around the, I think it came out just a little bit before Nixon's resignation. So this is in some way a response to Watergate. Um, but yeah, in a very different way, maybe from existence, I think it's a movie about um, how uh, technology has invaded our lives and makes it difficult one to have uh, privacy not in the kind of you know get off my property i don't want to look or see anyone else in my life sort of libertarian privacy but um the encroachment of um uh, technology and sur surveillance on the individual life and the inability to know what's real um based upon that encroachment um so i won't spoil the ending but uh, Gene Hackman's character slowly um, becomes unraveled by his guilt and his inability to be able to tell just what's going on, what's real, what's false. In a way, it's it shares some themes with the movie that you mentioned earlier, Father Schrader, the the game, um, where there's a question of what's real and what's not real. Um, but if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, I don't think there's anything. It's it's. Uh, I don't think there's anything in it. I can't remember. Maybe look up the the you know uh, uh, parental guidance or whatever, and see if there's anything in it that I'm missing that maybe you wouldn't want to watch it for. But for the most part, um, yeah, I think it's just an excellent film, highly underrated, should be talked about more often, and and one that's still really because of the themes, I think still really uh, pertinent. I think if it came out in 2022, everyone would be talking about it. Yeah, I just looked up in terms of the awards race. It was nominated for three Oscars, but didn't win. So it was nominated for Best Picture, for Best Original Screenplay, and Best Sound. Uh, it did win the Palme d'Or that year at Cannes, um, which is the the kind of top award at the Cannes Film Festival in the south of France there. But no, one that, unlike a lot of Coppola's movies, I think has not uh, stayed in, no pun intended, has not stayed in the conversation the same way. So one we need to return to. All right, as we uh, we close out here, I wanna just read through each of our selections. Um, and maybe it's best if we each read our own picks um, just so listeners can hear that and then go on Twitter and vote for whoever slate you like best either in terms of movies you've seen or in terms of movies that uh, one of us piqued your interest and got you most excited about, um, or just, you know, vote for your friend, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Taylor, you want to read through your picks? Yeah. So for Christmas, I picked Home Alone. Um, for family drama, There Will Be Blood. Psychological thriller, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Foreign language, 
Bergman's The Seventh Seal, um, Catholic film, Children of Men, and for 2022, The Batman with Robert Pattinson. Fantastic. Father Schrader. For Christmas, Ben-Hur, 1959, family drama, Babette's Feast, psychological thriller, Existence, foreign language, Pompoco, Catholic, The Reluctant Saint, the one about Joseph of Cupertino, and 2022, Father Stu. All right. And my draft list for Christmas movie, I have Catch Me If You Can, Family Drama, Ordinary People, Psychological Thriller, Zodiac, Foreign Language, Parasite. My Catholic movie is In Bruges. And my 2022 pick is Tar. And with that, we will close out this movie draft. So thanks very much for listening uh, to a kind of different sort of episode of Said Contra, the podcast of the Soccer Doctrina Project. But we hope for this Christmas break here at the end of the year and in this octave uh, and in this time of great leisure, um, but leisure for the sake of festivity celebrating the incarnation and our Lord's coming to redeem all of us. Uh, that this would be a good time to sit back, do something a little bit lighter on here, but also a chance for you to maybe find some new movie that you haven't seen before or return to an old favorite with your family or friends or loved ones during this Christmas season. And we hope that, yeah, this has given you some good things to think about, talk about, and maybe view in the coming days. So thanks very much. Again, remember to find us at soccerdoctrinaproject.org. And we will see you on the next episode of Said Contra. Merry Christmas.